0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the British Academy of Jewelry podcast. I am Sophie Boons, and today I have invited an experienced guest to join me in a discussion on what it is like to start, grow, and run a successful global jewelry business. Running a bespoke jewelry service in a global manner sounds like the ideal business model for the current climate. So who and what makes it work, and what are their plans for the future? To discuss the successful brand, its inception, and a range of related subjects, I have invited CEO of Taylor & Heart, Nikolai Peryankov. Welcome, Nikolai.
1: Thank you for the flattering intro, Sophie.
0: <laughs> Nikolai, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
1: Sure, sure. I'll try and cover a, a little bit of personal life and, uh, and what I do for the company. So as you mentioned, I'm the CEO of the company. I'm one of the founders as CEO initially of a small company. A lot of my work was being fully hands-on, a Swiss army knife. Uh, but uh, as the company has grown, I've had to evolve my role and learn how to be more of a leader, um, leader of people, but also leader of strategy and vision for the company and just making difficult decisions on where do we go next? How do we grow? Um, what are the priorities? What are the, what is the culture we aspire to have in the company and the values? So it's, uh, it's been a very different role than it was when we started, uh, the business. Um, and on a, on a personal level, I, I live in the UK, recently had twin girls. So like my uh, role as CEO has meant that I need to also think about work-life balance to be able to make sure that I have time for our little angels. And, um, yeah, it's a very exciting to be um, in an industry that has a huge potential for, for innovation.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more what attracted you in the first instance to the jewelry industry?
1: It's a bit of a funny story. I grew up in South Africa um, and a lot of people immediately go, oh, you grew up in South Africa, therefore diamonds. So that's why it kind of has some truth to that. But. Uh, I never thought I'd be in the jewelry industry. Don't have a uh, family in the industry. Had a, spent a little bit of time in South Africa working in a diamond showroom where I learned quite a bit. And then I left for the UK where I did my undergraduate. And towards the end of my degree, a really good friend of mine from South Africa, David, he reached out and he was telling me that he he really he looked at this company called Blue Nile and they were doing you know 500 million in turnover and he thought they're not doing anything special and there's a massive opportunity. And I said to him, you know, I kind of understand the industry a little bit from my experience, but also it was really good timing because I'd been with my girlfriend for a few years and I wanted to get engaged. And I said, I was actually thinking of, it was, you know, serendipitous because I was thinking I want to reach out to you anyway to plan uh, my own engagement. And we decided to go through the process together while observing from the paradigm of what it would, what's, what's not working, what's working in the industry. And that was when we started seeing large numbers of opportunities, opportunities around pricing transparency, opportunities around what customers were offered, how they were treated, um, the, the way in which a product was very much designed by and owned by the company, not the customer. And I'd always been a bit creative with things that I did for my for my girlfriend, and I wanted to design my own custom ring. And I thought that that was a thing, you know, I thought that everyone was doing this. And it turned out, I mean, this was 2012. so. You know, customers come a long way since then. There's even categories now in, in jewelry awards for this. But at that time, when you would Google custom engagement rings, there was no dedicated service for this, and that was a great opportunity for us because, from a Google perspective, we we said, right, we're going to start this company by winning and owning the search term custom engagement rings. Uh, part of our responsibility is also for growing the awareness in the industry of what it is like to design a custom ring. And for me, this, the reason why this is important is because, and rightfully so, I think a lot of customers are nervous about doing this. If they don't feel that they have a creative plan, they think that they have to engage and design the ring themselves. So I see technology innovation plus customer experience design as part of the ways in which we address this to make customers play more. I think if you, if you get people to play and, and feel comfortable on a website or in person. Over time, I think we will develop an experience whereby we leverage our own internal design expertise, but we give customers quite a, a, a great platform where they can see what's possible. So our, our big challenge and technical goal here is to, this helps us as a company as well. The more the customer plays, the more the customer is doing the work for us in a way. right? So from a tech perspective, I think that we've only touched the surface of what's possible. You know. Uh, little build build your own ring tools was the start, but I think that that just opened up the the door there's There's a whole world of of how technology and browser based rendering and um you know even virtual and augmented reality can give customers a very immersive experience, democratize this focal custom engagement rings and jewelry to a far wider uh, audience.
0: What is your vision for the company and what are you working towards? What are the steps you think to achieve these things? Because, of course, you don't necessarily have all the control over the technology developments. How do you plan for these changes?
1: I guess uh, I'll start off by saying that our mantra in the company uh, is love without limits. And I think it's, we, we're very passionate about this statement because it, it's very inclusive so on a on a human level it talks about the fact that we're about all kinds of love and all kinds of people so it's all about making this quite a democratized product it's not just for a certain price point or a certain type of person but then if you read into the second part the without limits is it's basically telling it's creating a standard for the company where we we if there are limits we want to we want to find ways to reduce them or eliminate them and that comes from the perspective of design Uh, That comes from the perspective of what technology can do for the company. And some of our technology has been playing catch up to some competitors. You know, we want to have the same level of diamond search as Blue Now or James Allen. But in other levels, I think that we've taken leadership on How do you build a bespoke quoting engine that makes it possible within seconds to accurately quote a customer on a custom piece? How do you present that design in a way that feels so immersive that they don't feel that they need to come into the store or showroom or that uh, if there isn't such a product because it is bespoke and they can't see it? How can we use 3D printing to approximate look and feel? So we have this whole... um, this mantra is all about finding the opportunities where we can empower customers to have this, this great experience. And I would say that that is the core of our vision. Side, sideways to that, there's a few elements around transparency and the importance of customers having transparency of supply chain, but also transparency of pricing. Um, I, again, I mentioned the early companies that came into this industry online. They did a great job on diamond transparency, uh, in my opinion, on pricing. Uh, but there's, there's, there's a lot more to be done from a supply chain perspective, um, that gives customers confidence in the product and the company.
0: Is this in response to you feel also to a change in customer expectations that the customers of of the past maybe didn't care as much or weren't as aware, and that you know with the internet and and knowledge at our fingertips that the customer just has changed and that you're having to respond.
1: You know, it's, it's it absolutely is the driving force behind this. Uh, but something that I, I've only just realized now in speaking with you is it's not only that, because also those same customers that you're talking about are also the business owners of today. So I think there's a greater kind of awareness from the people running the companies that they care. You know, I think that maybe it's fair to say that a previous generation, the customers didn't care and the company owners didn't care. And therefore, there was just a space where there was no need for this. But I, I think it would be unfair to say that it's only because everyone is rallying to respond to customer interest uh, in transparency of, of production processes and materials. I think also the, the, those founders that are maybe of a, a kind of millennial generation now, are themso- and it's not just from an ethics perspective. I, I also think it's just out of curiosity. It's a very uh, natural human condition to be, growing a company where you have an understanding of all the working parts that is quite deep, not just superficial. So it's great. It's a great time to, I think, be founding a company because those new founders, those uh, those entrepreneurs that are now starting businesses uh, are, are coming already with this value set with a care for how their product is made and where it comes from. That makes it very easy to address that customer uh, interest in those types of products. So I think it's it's looking like it's a little bit harder for companies that have quite legacy leadership teams and cultures because there it's definitely a board meeting. We need to address this because our customers want it. And then there's like solutions for the customer rather than it being a deeply in the culture of the company um, perspective, which, which I feel like for our company it is. I mean, only yesterday we sent out a survey where it's a survey specifically to ask our team how well they think we're doing. You know the main goal here was obviously there's a there 's a question around diversity uh, widely in the industry right now, instead of making bold statements externally, our goal now is to start off by having an internal dialogue and asking our team how do they feel and We see diversity as a very widespread function across every types of inclusiveness um, so no findings yet, uh, but it 's something that is uh, Basically, it comes from a perspective of, we started by saying, looking at the industry and everyone talks about conflict diamonds and the need for ethical diamonds. But over time, we started realizing that that's a very narrow focus for being an ethical jeweler. If you look at the websites of most jewelers, the, the only section on ethics that they'll talk about is around sourcing of diamonds, maybe gemstones. But actually, there's a wider discussion here around the company culture, the production practices... Um, the materials you know there 's now a growing demand for fair trade and recycled metals, so we decided that that we need to open up that dialogue to to a wider range of, of subjects that we care about, and also sometimes it 's not always an immediate we care about the subject, sometimes we need to ask our colleagues what they care about so this is the point of the survey is are we missing an opportunity here where a large number of people feel that there 's something that we should be doing more than what we already are
0: on another note, Taylor and Hart. Have been selling online in a range of countries from your London store. And I noticed a New York showroom. What are the benefits and disadvantages of a business model that doesn't have many brick and mortar shops to support? And how do you see it evolve in post-COVID-19 times?
1: So I'm sure it's not a surprise to anyone listening that the trend that, you know, I feel that the trend moving away around pure play brick and mortar has been happening for some time, and and COVID is more catalyst to that change rather than um, a step change. But what what we were just discussing very recently in our team was that we're trying to get under the skin of what makes customers want to come to, to a physical location. And we launched virtual consultations once we had to close our showroom. So you're right, Sophie, that we do have an online business, but quite a large number of our customers, about a third, still come in for a consultation. So um, not in a store. We have showrooms, which are office-based. Our business thinking here is that we're reducing the cost of of having a physical location, and we can transfer that saving to the customers. We don't have to have expensive insurance, stock, and and pay pay rents at that level. So coming back to the virtual consultation, we we, we launched the virtual consultation in response to giving customers some kind of connection with the brand that was uh, a bit more personal than email or live chat, which is the only other option they would have had, and we, we felt like the conversion rates on customers who engaged in this way would be very close to that of live chat because it's, it's like live chat but with video and it's how we reason. It turned out that it was much closer to the conversion rates of people who come into a store. And that made us realize that to a large extent, at least it's not a realization, it's more an opinion but a strong opinion that a, the need to come into a store is partly about seeing the product in person But to a much greater extent, I think it's about the human interaction and the relationship and the trust that comes by having that connection with someone that isn't as easy to build by email and chat, right? And I think that an hour-long conversation, you get so many signals from your jeweler about how they behave, how they talk about products, pricing, and and you you get an impression. And hopefully that impression from our team is very positive. It looks like it is from our data. And suddenly you know, the the experience you've had with other jewelers may not be as positive and we've been able to get that customer to consider us as as their first choice. To come back to your question, it's important to still have touch points that are very close to that physical uh, perspective, both from a relationship perspective and from a product one. But I think there's innovative ways to do this that are no longer requiring the brick and mortar store. So I mentioned showrooms. Uh, I know that some of the companies in the industry are sending out samples to customers to engage them that way. For us, we haven't done that just yet because we haven't found a way in which it works seamlessly. And for us, like we, we don't want to do things that are half working. And there's issues there around getting the rings back and maintaining quality standards. If you, if you send out a 35 pounds silver with CZ ring, it, doesn't do justice to the product, especially at our standard. So we moved away from silver and we moved into platinum with diamond samples in the showroom. Um, So then how do you send, it's not easy to send that product out. So there are other innovative ways and it's great to see other companies addressing this. But I think that the end game here is that all the talented people that are great at building relationships, they will have a great succession, regardless of whether they're currently in a store. They will find a way, those companies and those people, or find a way to continue engaging with customers in a meaningful way. Because I think the primary thing for a jeweler is that personal relationship, not necessarily on its own seeing the product in person. And I think that's the the, the great thing about most independent jewelers is that they have these relationships. And if they can just add a layer of giving customers convenience by having like an online, even if that means not even a website, even if that means we're now doing WhatsApp shopping, we're fully WhatsApp business. You know, it's not uncommon to see Instagram-only businesses. China has led the way with uh, WeChat businesses entirely built, built on a messaging platform. So I think it's all about an, an approach to how you think about your customer experience, not necessarily as binary as brick and mortar or online. Um, and I think that a lot of companies are taking interesting approaches to how they, they bridge that gap.
0: We touched upon diamonds before and because we're all getting more knowledgeable about them, there is also such a thing as laboratory-grown diamonds. What is the company and your stance on laboratory-grown diamonds? So what's your thoughts on on using these, and are your customers interested in them or not?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I mean, there was a lot of defensiveness against lab-grown diamonds at the, at the kind of, la- I would say, last year and the year before. There was quite a large... Uh, resistance, a lot of dialogue as to what we're doing internally in the company, and I think whenever we struggle with a decision or whenever, whenever it's a difficult decision to make, we always come back to our brand and our vision, and we, we are not a diamond company, we are a design company, and our mantra is love without limits, so what does that mean? You know, we, we, we want to give customers everything that's the best possible option in, that's in their interest, And lab-grown diamonds quite easily ticks the box of diversity of product offering that engages customers. I will say one thing though, for us what's really important is not to get caught up in this kind of binary discussion of lab-grown versus natural that it currently exists for companies that choose one or the other. And the the traps that we urge our consultants not to get caught in is to tell customers things like, lab-grown is better because it's ethical, because that's not true you know, lab grown has a huge carbon footprint. And also, those funds that, that um, finance natural diamonds, they're going back into African countries where large parts of their GDP and well-being comes from the ability for those diamonds to be mined. So I would say that the ethics discussion is that we are furthest away from that. We think that every product you offer should have an ethical background um, and provenance, and it shouldn't be like, okay, lab grown is ethical, and, and naturally mine diamonds aren't. So, it's more about a diversity of options uh, for customers. And the way in which we think about it is that there are certain products, especially around jewelry, where the aesthetic of a larger diamond is really important. So, you know, uh, uh, we, we have customers, women who buy for themselves, and sometimes you want to have uh, one carrot uh, each diamond stud earrings. And the price to pay for that with naturally mine diamonds for a self gifted product is just very high. That is a great opportunity um, to to purchase lab grown diamonds. There's less of a, a meaning behind the product. It's all about aesthetic. When it comes to an engagement ring, there's a lot more symbolism. There's a lot more meaning behind the product. And we are romantics as you can tell by our mantra. There's a meaning behind natural diamonds. I mean, if you look into the history of this, they were created you know, billions of years ago, not millions of years ago, you know, it's fascinating. They are, they are rare. They will run out. You know, they are, I believe planets with diamonds in other galaxies or in other solar systems, which I I don't believe we're going to get to, to mine. And there's something special about, about that journey. And I think that that there's a, there's there's a genuine interest in the provenance of where diamonds come from to capture that story because it's natural, just like gold um, was created at the explosion of a star. There's, There's something wonderful about that while something that's being manufactured to serve a commercial purpose, I think it, it will never have that. So I think there will always be space for both products. I genuinely believe that the engagement ring is a product with natural diamonds. That's my preference to recommend to customers. But we don't take a binary preference. We, we do, you asked whether we have customers who are interested in a life we absolutely do. And to our surprise, the interest doesn't come primarily from price alone, though that is obviously a major factor. It seems that it's also just something that people find trendy, cool, interesting you know if if you are a, an early adopter and innovator, I think it can appeal to you in that way that you identify with this product as being grown it's it's quite cool so there's a there's a segment of the market that we feel we service well by by being inclusive and offering the product um, but we are taking a position where we think both are 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 really important. I will say one last thing about this, which is Everyone says they're virtually the same. Spent a bit of time in Mumbai just before uh, the lockdown in the UK, actually. We spent we saw a lot of our supplies. A large part of the diamond supply chain is, is obviously in India. And I will say that it is not definitely the case that they are the same as natural. They will end up being the same once the manufacturing processes are perfectly refined. But right now, both the CVD and the HPHT processes lead to Outcomes of certain types of color tinges and hues on the diamond, certain types of behaviors in natural light that aren't always ideal. So, there's no issue here if you're working with a jeweler that is aware of this and checking this as part of their QC. But what we heard and we were very saddened to hear is that no one, until we had asked these questions, had asked these questions for the companies that were currently selling lab grown. They were surprised that we took the same level of quality control on the lab grounds as we have on our natural diamonds in terms of color and tinge and overtones and milkiness uh, and light performance. So when we asked them if there's a way for us to filter these diamonds out, they told us that because no one had asked for this up until now, they hadn't incorporated that data into their stock systems, which made it very difficult for us to buy. So we did agree that we would have a returns policy that would allow for us to fail from a quality control perspective, lab-grown diamonds that we don't like. But what it made me realize is that there's a large number of companies in the industry that are currently not educating customers about these light and color properties that do make some lab-grown diamonds appear a little bit brown, uh, a little bit gray sometimes. Uh, In fact, one of the learnings was for a certain way of making lab-grown diamonds, sometimes in natural light, they may go a little bit cloudy and hazy, um, which is obviously undesirable. You want your diamond to be beautiful in, 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 in natural light. So I think there's still some education, um, not just for customers, but even for the industry. I mean, we were educated on this trip where that statement of they are the same is is something that I don't think is true yet. And another place where it's not necessarily true is... We, we set ourselves a standard for what grading laboratory we use to assess uh, our diamonds. We use the GIA for, for naturally mined diamonds. The GIA does not does produce a lab-grown certificate now. They didn't for some time. But it's not as detailed as we'd like. So we do use the IGI certificate. Now, the issue there is that the standards are different from GIA. So we also feel like we need to create our own internal quality standard for the cut, the make of the diamond, because it is one of the most important properties for us is recommending a diamond that is will be brilliant and sparkle. So when using a different lab from the GIA, we're creating somewhat of an inconsistency there unless we add our own layer of quality control, which we have done now. So it's just a few things there where I'd say any messaging that is they are the same is not being completely honest with the customer. I think customers need to be educated of what parts of that diamond should be uh, looked at differently from natural diamonds and making sure that they get a, a diamond just as beautiful and just as brilliant as a natural one.
0: It is clear the company really values its team. What are you looking for in goldsmiths or designers when you formulated your team or when you are expanding the team?
1: Yeah, it's great that you asked this question because just... You know, a year ago, we, we didn't have uh, a workshop. We only launched that uh, this year. And it's been a game changer for the business. Um, as, a, as a growing company, having end-to-end control of every part of the process, from design through to packaging up and sending out, uh, like having the workshop has been a fantastic addition to the business. And uh, we, we definitely missed it over lockdown where we had to close. It was... Uh, we just got it, and then we kind of had to close. It was very sad. But we're back up and running now. It's a very big space. We planned ahead, which makes social distancing very easy, so everyone's quite comfortable there. Uh, but to answer your question, we just had a, a new uh, gentleman join the team as a setter, and we were discussing with our production manager, and he was saying, you know, it's so important in a workshop environment to have a great culture fit because you need to be able to, like, like your colleagues, work well together. Under and, and, you know, it's, it can get quite stressful. I've been, in, the, I've been in, in workshops when it's Christmas and the quality of that relationship comes under strain and, and everyone needs to work, work well together. Companies have several cultures. They have microcultures. You know, you have your overall company values and, and culture. And then you have cultures that are different, you know, our technology team. Have their own little kind of technology culture of sales team, and then the workshop is now developing its own culture so to answer your question, I think the first thing is that we look for someone that shares our values and will be a good fit. Then the next thing that we 're looking for is is for someone who has a commitment to excellence at, at the level which we require, which luckily from a workshop perspective is quite easy to assess right it's, it's, it's a a trial and, and if you succeed and have our, our standard. And I think, yeah, there's also an element of looking for people that are willing to learn and improve. So there's a there's natural curiosity of how to do things better is key, um, not being set in their way. So one of the things I'm very excited about and why it's good to be speaking with you today is we, we've hired some senior people, but the vision behind that was always that they would create great, great, great mentors um, for apprentices coming into, into the business. So I th- it's one of the goals for Paul, uh, our, our head of quality, to start branching out into growing the team by bringing in talent that we develop. And he's a teacher, um, so I believe he already has quite a bit of experience doing that. And I think he's quite excited for how the company grows. I think he's even more excited than I am because he's talking about sending people to competitions and and kind of winning awards for the work they do, which is great. Like I I, I totally want him to own that part of the business and and drive that forward. And for us to be, have award winning, uh, winning sets and goldsmiths on, on the team. So, yeah, it's an exciting time and can't, can't believe that it took seven years to get there. But it was, um, you know, thanks to our most recent in investors, Active, who came in on this round, on the previous round, which one of the basis, one of the reasons why we were looking for investment was to bring in uh, production fully in-house with the, with the workshop. So uh, fantastic times ahead for us with, um, with hiring uh, new colleagues for, for the production team.
0: You mentioned already, you have also adopted computer-aided design into the business. Can you tell us how and why computer-aided design can help the production of jewelry pieces and how, how it relates to the craft as well that you bring into your pieces?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. So since we, you know, when we started, we also didn't have obviously computer-aided design in the company. Uh, we were working with CAD designers that were external. And it was a night and day change when we hired our first internal CAD designer and brought that expertise in-house and started creating a design aesthetic, a quality aesthetic um, that that would be the standard for the business. One of the things that happened uh, to be very transparent with you is that we, we we started noticing that there was still a disconnect because the, the CAD designers were producing products in isolation with the dialogue with the person who's actually going to assemble and build that and finish it as you can imagine there's a product development process with every product that's made for the first time and our customers are like we want our custom ring in two weeks and you're like we're designing and developing a product for the first time so as a segue from this very quickly one of the things that was important for our business was to set realistic time frames for rings and initially it was a one rule one time for all rings and that didn't work right you have a solitaire that you've made a hundred times and then you have a filigree, uh, mill grained, uh, you know, handset design that's been hand engraved as a finish. I mean, it doesn't work. So I mentioned earlier our bespoke quoting tool. It's one of the things that it's done is not only price products accurately, it also understands time for manufacturing different components. So it builds up a ring, not just from a components and price perspective, but it also ends up presenting the customer realistic timeframe that we can commit to. And um, that took a lot of learning and dialogue between CAD and production um, because it, without that dialogue, you produce something and then you, you, you step out and you, you let go of the responsibility. But I think that what we've done now by putting our team, the CAD team, with the workshop, they're actually in the same office, finally. I mean, that was a great moment because it's just a few steps away and you can have a conversation before you send the customer the design. That was the key part. I mean, we were committing to things and then later having to change them, redo them. And, and obviously that wasn't great from a customer experience perspective. So I think there's a lot of question about CAD uh, replacing um, traditional handmade uh, manufacturing. And I I, I, I I disagree. I think there's obviously a space for something fully made by hand uh, for customers who are looking for that. But I think that what is possible now is having the care team with the production team working together and having that dialogue. It's just been a fantastic change for the business. And I don't think that there is definitely still a space for artisanal handmade products. Uh, But what I'm seeing from our own own, uh, experts is that they really like the fact that they can see something in 3D before we commit to it. They can have a dialogue. So I think they, yes, they may be spending slightly less time working with their hands, but they spend more time thinking about and planning and communicating. So the the creative process isn't hampered in any way. I think if anything, it's, it's being expanded. The universe of possibilities are being expanded because they can ask to see something quickly and how that would work. And then we can, we have a 3D printer as well. So we also kind of prototype internally. And, and then there's a dialogue. And I, I find those conversations fascinating. I think that CAD and hand making are going to work really well together in, in the long term. And it will also make it possible for uh, customers to access this product at a lower price point. Because I think that the labor cost of making something by hand, it's wonderful, it's special, but it doesn't necessarily mean that every person can have access to that. I think CAD drops that cost a little bit and makes something custom and bespoke truly accessible to a wider number of people.
0: If you have a message for any CAD students, what would it be?
1: There's, There's only so far you can go with CAD and then you need to, close the computer and get into a workshop. I really find that the difference between great CAD designers and uh, and okay CAD designers are those who understand what it takes to manufacture a product. And this is my point around craftsmen learning from CAD, but equally CAD learning from the craftsmen. Um, I I think too many people are doing CAD in isolation of the real world of what it takes to, to clean up a piece where if you've gone, if you, you know, and it's not just about design, it's how you prepare the design for printing uh, and it, just setting up your team for success, not to work in a bubble of, Here's has my beautiful perfect CAD, and, and now, you know, I'm, I've done my job. It's like, Make, make commit to seeing this through to the end. And that requires an understanding of, of manufacturing and crafting techniques.
0: You mentioned on your website that you connect the customer with the designer that you feel could relate best to them. Now, there might be graduates who are not interested in starting their own business, but wanting to work for a brand like yours. What are you looking for in a designer specifically? What makes a good designer?
1: I think this... Two things I would say about that. The first is that one of our principles as a brand is to listen first. And I I think that there's a lot of designers that uh, are are driven by ego and their own designs, and that's fine. There's a space for that in the jewelry industry to design collections that customers buy because of your name. Our team of designers serve the customer to do so. they, They want to capture as much of their ideas, their partner, their preferences by listening and asking questions. So I think it's a high level of empathy and, and listening skills is really key. And, and then it's about taking a creative idea and, and, and translating it without being too literal within a design aesthetic that is within the spectrum of what the brand believes is beautiful. Now, obviously, uh, there are all kinds of, you know, when you say, when a customer says to us, we would like a ring that has a lobster, you go on Google and you'll see that other companies and, and uh, designers have produced very literal looking designs. For us, we want the ring to stand the test of time, and we want someone who's 80 to be equally fond of their ring as they were when they were 20. Um, so we often, we like this kind of design principle of translating something, and, and you have to be confident. You have to be confident to tell the customer that you're gonna do that, because they often go like, well, no, I just want my lobster on my ring. You're like. That's not what we do here, you know, we, we don't do that. And even when they come to us asking for designs based on competitors, we always say, well, what would we have done if we had this brief of this design, how would we make it better? How would we change it? Both from an IP, but an intellectual property perspective, but also because our designers don't actually feel always that that is the best design. So I'll give an example, the Tiffany uh, classic six prom design. You know, every company now has a knife edge design um, with six prongs because it's a very classic design. We, we felt that that knife edge needed to be smooth, smoothed out a little bit towards where the fingers touch because it's quite a pronounced, you know, depth in the middle. And, we made, and then that was the first change. And then we started making other changes and we kind of like created our own. And I think everyone feels very proud that, that that's our knife-edge design as opposed to internally discussing it as the Tiffany Prong because it isn't. So that's just a very small principle in the collection. But can you imagine that flows through? So when looking for a designer, it's important to have that ability not to just take something and say, yes, I have the technical skills to create a lobster in CAD, and it's more about how would I interpret this in a way that works for your partner, her, her preferences, create something beautiful. And I like this little design idea of creating something that not everyone sees straight away. It's one of these things that like, you can't unsee it when you see it, but it isn't immediately obvious. So um, a few times uh, we created designs where the brief was, a motorbike or a lobster, or, you know, I think we have a hedgehog, uh, lots of fauna and flora. Seeing our designers take that idea and create something that's quite unique, but also has a design aesthetic that we're proud of. That's, that's the kind of thing we're looking for when interviewing a designer, seeing, seeing that ability to interpret, listen interpret and create something that um, is beautiful.
0: So a bit of the power of symbolism as well.
1: Exactly. I think that's mostly what people are going for is really the story behind the product, not the literal interpretation.
0: Uh, Taylor and Hart was founded in 2013 and is obviously doing very well. What do you think is the key to success when you start a business in the jewelry industry?
1: The jewelry industry is is obviously very competitive. And I think differentiation is 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 key. It's probably the most important thing. It's like creating your own place, your own universe. And this is this way of thinking of blue ocean strategy where you think about a place that no one else has claimed the problem with that approach with the blue ocean strategy sometimes I, what, I'm, what i'm seeing and we've been caught in this trap as well uh, i think a lot of companies in very competitive spaces are where sometimes you create something new just to be different but don't always based on what customers actually are asking for and looking for so i think true to our whole we listen first statements as part of our values it's important to also listen like on a wider level of what, what's going on out there. We started the company on the level of thinking about that wider listening and custom uh, and bespoke design was that listening responding to a need that we, we we saw and obviously many have followed and responded to that. And I think that responding to the need for provenance and information about where things come from is another one. So my my recommendation to anyone starting a business is First of all, not trying to be everything for everyone. I think there's a lot of jewelers that uh, online jewelers that are pro- approximately our size and you go on their website and they have every type of product for every type of customer, because why not? It's just CAD. But I think that the customer journeys are very different when buying an engagement ring, a wedding ring, a self-purchased product or a gift. There's a lot of pressure to understand every single customer journey at a level of detail that would make you the best in class. So you may have noticed that we don't sell jewelry. We actually sold a very limited jewelry range last year and we took a step back. And I think that's also important to be able to take step back, steps back when you, when you realize that. And the reason why is it just didn't fit within our, our standard of quality. It's not, it was not love without limits. It was love without limits plus a jewelry set collection, not not within the brand guidelines. So my recommendation would be to connect these two together. As they say in this book, the lean startup, get out of the office or get out of the house and look at what's going on, look at what people are saying. Um, try and form an opinion on what's missing in industry or what can be done better. And then focus on that. So I think the focus is key uh, because it's get very easy to say, I've spotted an opportunity. I'm gonna I'm going to address it. At the same time customers also want signet rings and wedding rings and eternity rings and earrings and suddenly all of those other products miss the whole insight that you had in the first place so i think that's the key to success not just for jewelry but for any kind of company that is in a competitive space and i think the next thing that we are now only trying to do right now is once you figure that out and you do it well is you need to elevate that to a distinctiveness in your brand so that your brand appears differentiated because We got caught in the trap where what I believe we're doing is very differentiated and very good. Customers who go through the whole experience feel that and love it and leave great reviews, but we didn't necessarily convey that at the top of the funnel in our brand identity. Our brand identity still looked quite generic. So we're now, like right now, we're going through this process of rebranding, not changing our name, but changing how we visually display the brand, tone of voice, to make sure that we that differentiated positioning that we've taken is communicated to customers and then remembered so that customers can go, oh wow, you know that brand, Taylor & Hart, and it's very distinctive in its look and feel and in how it communicates. Being brave is important because often we, you know the, the ask here is take a, le- a bold leap. It takes a certain type of mindset, an entrepreneurial mindset to do that, um, I think. And, and then there's a big debate of whether you're born or made an entrepreneur, I think that, there's a combination of the two. I think that you can learn and get comfortable in a space of more risk over time. Some, it can feel really scary on day one to start a business. Um, but you kind of like the human condition is very versatile and you adapt and you get used to fast paced decision-making and, and volatility. So my recommendation to anyone who thinks they're not born an entrepreneur is to to, to think about what is it that makes an entrepreneur and, and you know, give it a go. It's about that evaluation but it's also about being committed both to make a decision but also being brave enough to step back if you made the wrong one and do that cycle of evaluation commitment evaluate whether that's working quickly enough so that you're constantly tweaking and I think there's also something to say about it's very easy to get caught in the trap of looking at the top 20 websites for engagement rings taking the what you think is the best thing from each one and creating a new brand that basically does that you may be missing out on on the most in, important insight may not be something that they look, they look like they're doing well. So I think sometimes speaking to customers is more important uh, than speaking, than looking at what your competitors are doing. So this is a whole debate about whether you're internal, look, you look inwards or look outwards at what you're doing. I think you have to start by looking outwards at customers, maybe a little bit of competitors, but once you get what we call product market fit, where you feel that what you have created is a repeatable model for success, Then I think you and you have a core values structure that you believe um, is the right values for your business and the right vision. Then I think you look inwards and you just expand on that as much as you can make it better. Like an obsession to being better. And any documentary or book or article about Steve Jobs and Apple shows how that can be very, very successful constantly disregarded advice on what was the right thing to do based on what competitors were doing. And he was always talking about the insight of what the customer really wanted. I mean, a a, a thousand songs in your pockets, that didn't come from what, from watching how the Walkman was working. Right. So I I think that that's something that is inspiring for me is that way of, and at the same time, you have to find an emotional intelligence to not be uh, like completely obsessed in your own little bubble of your own thoughts, you have to rely on your team. So I think that's where maybe I would say the analogy with Steve Jobs, I, I don't compare myself to Steve Jobs at all, but I think you're obviously inspired by leaders and you to try and take the best things that they, they, they present and you know, who's to say how Steve Jobs really was, I never saw him in person, but at least how he's portrayed. I think what I'm trying to do differently as a leader is, is to where I'm not an expert is to listen.
0: Going back to what you said in the beginning, when you started the business, your role was very different and it's evolved into something quite new. Could you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, the first thing to say about that is, uh, it's all about the team, right? Um, I I think the the longer we go and grow, the less my specific individual contribution matters as opposed to, of the team and I guess my contribution here was who did I bring into that team so there was a really important point where we we structured that team where that was my contribution and I'll say that that was probably the most important part of my contribution is is, is, was I able personally to attract uh, other people on our vision on our journey Um, so the difference and that the the face changes in that journey are very much about being very self-aware of your weaknesses Being very self-aware of your strengths and leveraging those and doubling down on those. And if you're not doing the right thing in the company right now, it doesn't mean you are not the right person for the company. It could just be that you're doing uh, in the wrong role. And and I've gone through so many changes and it's usually to fill gaps. As a founder, you try and fill the gaps and you bring in people that are experts for specific areas of the business. And you don't always get it right and we haven't always gotten it right. But maybe just to come back to that team point, the founding team, the people that you start off with, one of the things that often happens is that you approach people you know and you trust naturally because trust is such a key part to starting a business with someone but i think that trust is only as important as being complementary and you know many people and as was the case in my experience my my co-founder and i we both were very we we didn't complement each other we were actually quite similar and we we both had strong vision uh, around the business and we, what I needed more was, uh, you know, a finance person and what we needed and what we needed was someone who was going to be a great manager because neither of us necessarily started off having a lot of management capability to pull people together. So over time, you learn these uh, lessons, but it's it's painful to learn that lesson with a founder. It's, it's, it's okay. It's still painful with, with a key team member. If you make a mistake, you know, you can have a conversation and part ways. But I think it's key to stress both the importance of having a team but also the importance of not rushing to make that team based only on the fact on, the, on good intentions, because it can be very exciting when you start. Everyone's like just bubbling and it's like, oh my God, we're going to take over the world. There needs to be a moment where you step away from that excitement and you assess, because it's easy to just say, you're going to do this. I'm going to do this. You need to do this like a hiring process. Like I, like I am hiring you for this role and you are hiring me for that role. Do we both agree that we are the best hires for that? And it doesn't mean that you don't necessarily start the business together, but you may find that there's some, some gaps that you need to fill or that you change, make tweaks and you align on those expectations from day one. So I think that is something that's very important. I know it's a little bit different to the question you asked, but I think it's just so key for anyone considering starting a business. Some will be tempted to run a business on their own. I really think that that's a very dark and difficult space. If If you've never done it before, because the feedback loop of having someone to share concerns with and and even just the celebration, the the ups are even better with others. Right. So I think it's key to have a team to complement each other, to take your time in choosing that team. And then once the business starts evolving, it's just to be very self-aware of your weaknesses and where you need to bring people in. And and then the hardest thing, which I still can't say that I've mastered, is letting go. There are elements of the business that I still, I I would say that the best thing that helped me with letting go was, was our twin girls being born. And it just made me reassess of my time is going to be, is very poor now. And I need to make sure that like these large parts of the business, I just trust the people we put into place there um, to do a fantastic job because I have no choice, but I, I probably could have learned to do this earlier if I had the awareness, the emotional awareness. So I think on the next company in 10 years time or so, I'll probably be a much better empower of people just because I've gone through this experience where I think I, I, I take longer than I should in many cases to do that. Uh, and that's key because people love to be empowered. And you know what? You empower someone and you'll get it wrong and they'll leave the business and that's also fine. Sometimes by not empowering someone stays in the company for a longer period of time and your frustrations on both sides. So I think that sometimes these kind of like deep, as I said earlier, bold, brave decisions resolve themselves either way, it ends up positive. Even if the person stays and does a great job or they leave and someone else comes, that, both of those scenarios are positive. The only negative scenario is not trusting people, micromanaging and, and, and over time, that just builds frustration on both sides. If anyone's interested in our company from a working with us perspective, uh, you can always send a, a, an email or a message on LinkedIn uh, to myself, uh, That's probably the best platform for that. Um, But yeah, we are very excited about kind of creating a, a, a great culture and community of jewelers and craftsmen and designers in the business and looking for exceptional talent. So very excited to chat with you if you're interested.
0: That customers are looking for bespoke jewelry in an increasingly competitive market is both logical and exciting. The fact that Taylor and Hart have gone from strength to strength is encouraging to those jewelry graduates out there with a unique voice and a passion for delivering the bespoke experience. Selling globally can appear daunting and even though it requires some strategic thought, it can be done and will perhaps be even more important in post-COVID-19 times. For now, I would just like to say a huge thank you to Nikolai for sharing all of his advice and his story and insights and thoughts. Thank you so much Nikolai.
1: Thank you very much for having me it was a pleasure to chat with you.
0: Next month I'll be joined by another guest so watch this space to find out who it is. For now this was Sophie Boons for the BHA podcast titled A Global Bespoke Approach to Retail. Thank you for joining and listening and have a wonderful rest of the day.